Our scripture reading this evening is from 1 Timothy chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 3, and also chapter 4, verse 13. We read the Bible believing that it is the inspired and inerrant word of the true and living God and our only rule of faith and practice. The Apostle Paul writes to Timothy, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that they may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. And then uh, chapter 4, verse 13 Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. And the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Um, It's an an honor to be here and to participate in the uh, ordination service for Will Keaton. Uh, Over the years, uh, you may or may not be aware that we we trade back and forth uh, uh, some of your interns will finish uh, their seminary education, then they'll go down and they'll intern with us, and uh, then they go on from there. Sometimes they come back here in Will's case. Uh, that's, uh, that's what's happened. Uh, Will was a great intern for us. You're getting a very good young uh, minister. We define great in Savannah as uh, being willing to do whatever you're asked to do and smile while you do it. So we asked, for example, we asked Will to... Uh, head up a Bible study at uh, Armstrong, which is a part of uh, Brant, uh, uh, Georgia uh, Southern University. And he just saluted, smiled, and was happy to do it, and went down and got a Bible study going that we had never had there before. And that was just typical of his attitude, just willing to serve in, in whatever way that he uh, was able to contribute. So my, uh, my first internship uh, took place right after I graduated from college and I'll never forget the feeling that I had that I was getting paid to do something that I had a tremendous passion for doing. Uh, when I was in college, um, I was, you know, I was leading Bible studies, and I organized uh, the, the fraternity sorority row Bible study at the University of Southern California. I didn't teach it, but I, I was the one that organized everything got it together, 120, 130 students would attend uh, that. And I was, you know, very, very devoted to bringing the gospel to bear upon the university. Uh, Then when I graduated and I started this internship at the Lake Avenue Congregational Church in Pasadena, California, I was absolutely uh, astonished that I was getting paid to do that thing for which I had the most passion in all the world to do. Uh, The Apostle Paul, I think um, we see something of the echo of that, kind of, of um, privilege, sense of privilege. Uh, he says in Ephesians uh, 3, 7, of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace to me, though I am the very least of all the saints. You see, the, the apostle's humility, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. A tremendous privilege to Devote yourself in this most immediate and and direct way uh, to the progress of the gospel. Uh, The man that I consider to be the greatest of the 20th century preachers, Martin Lloyd-Jones, 
uh, once wrote that in his view, and I'll quote him, the work of preaching is the highest and the greatest and the most glorious calling to which anyone can ever be called. Uh, True preaching, he continued, is the most urgent need in the Christian church today. He spoke of what he called the romance of preaching. There is nothing like it, he insisted. We may say with Lloyd-Jones of the whole work of the ministry, let me quote him again, it is the greatest work in the world, the most thrilling, the most exciting, the most rewarding, and the most wonderful. Uh, That's what you're being called uh, to do, Will. And uh, Lloyd-Jones is spot on uh, when he says this. This is the greatest work in all the world. And what I want to focus on this evening for our consideration is the public work of the, the minister. So I don't want to be misunderstood. I'm not, um, I'm not implying that, um, that uh, the, the minister can neglect his own private devotions. No, I think he needs to doubly bear down on, on maintaining a, a personal communion with Christ. Um, I'm, I'm not neglecting, or hope not heard to be neglecting, the importance of, of, of personal uh, piety uh, I'll quote from Robert Murray McShane, another of our great uh, heroes of the faith. Remember, you are God's sword, his instrument in great measure, according to the purity and perfections of the instrument, will be the success. It is not great talents God blesses, so much as great likeness to Jesus. A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. Uh, the Apostle Paul himself uh, says in 1 Thessalonians 2.10, You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. Uh, that's, that's quite a commendation. Holy, righteous, blameless. Of course, personal piety is ab- absolutely cr- crucial. That's why he'll go on in uh, chapter 4 of 1 Timothy uh, to remind Timothy to pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching, of course, your teaching, but to yourself as well, that you maintain a holy, righteous, blameless life. I don't want to be heard as uh, neglecting the importance of individual pastoral work either. Richard Baxter, I think, forever settled that issue when he published Reformed Pastor. But I want the focus this evening to be on the public work of the pastor, the work of the pastor as the church gathers uh, as the church gathers and Jesus promises to be present, as he, as, he, as he says, where two or more have been gathered in my name, there I will be in the midst. So when the whole church is gathered in the presence of Christ under the word of God, singing the praises of God as the people of God, it's that work that I want to focus on. And as a pragmatic concern, uh, well, I would just... Uh, uh, I want to warn you that by and large, what you will be judged upon by your congregations over the years is going to be your public work more than anything else. Uh, that's, uh, the, the congregation is going to see you and hear from you in the public services. And so this is at the heart of, of what we do, and it is crucial that we do it as Christ has commanded that we do this work. So uh, two headings I want to work under, uh, as you might imagine, multiple subheadings. But number one, you're to lead in prayer. Number two, uh, you are to lead in the ministry of the word. So let's look, first of all, at uh, leading in prayer. I think that the development of the title of worship leader has been an unfortunate 
development. Um, who are worship leaders? That, well, that's what ministers are. Ministers are worship leaders. That's what we're called to do is lead uh, the people of God in worship. So when we read in 1 Timothy 2, first of all, uh, the Apostle Paul says, like, like here is the priority. Here, here we might even say, here is the defining activity of the people of God when, when, when they gather. Jesus says, my house shall be called a house of what? Prayer. That, that characterizes what we do when we gather. We, we are gathering in order to pray. You are leading the congregation in prayer. So first of all then, here's your instructions for when the congregation gathers. I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. All sorts of prayer for all sorts of, of people. Now, remember, the context here is the pastoral epistles. Uh, the Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, 6, he's being poured out as, a, as, a, as an offering. He's anticipating his imminent death. He will not be long with them. So he's, he's setting things in order. That's the word that he uses in Titus 1, 5. He's establishing the priorities for the church, for the ministry of the church, and putting things in order on the eve of his departure from the world, where there, uh, to, for a time when there will no longer be ap- apostles exercising apostolic uh, authority. What is the church to do? Well, here's what he says. First of all, here's what you're to do. I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in authority. So let me try to break this down uh, for us. And I, I think that this is among the most important um, emphases that need to be made in, in our pres- present time. As, as, as I think the much overlooked role that uh, leadership in public prayer has. Uh, Hughes Old has talked about how public prayer in our day has become an embarrassment to the tradition. Um, J.I. Packer has complained about the general incoherence of most public prayer. So in order to improve or hopefully improve uh, the prayer life of the congregation and your leadership in the prayer life of the congregation, I have a number of recommendations I want to make. Number one, understand that where prayer fits in a service that is, that is driven by gospel logic. If you go from the top of the service to the bottom of the service, there is a progression. There is a progression from praise to confession of sin to thanksgiving uh, to the utilization of the, of the means of grace, including um, the prayers of intercession and then the reading of the word and the preaching of the word and then a concluding uh, benediction. Prayer has this important role that it, that it plays. And I want to reaffirm later on in this message uh, that, uh, that, that the gospel is being preached in a proper worship service before you ever get to the sermon. Because uh, the, 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 the service as a whole is, is driven by the logic of the gospel. We move from the presence of God to the confession of sin to the need of strength that comes through the ministry uh, of the word. So that, that's number one. Just understand basically the flow of, of the worship service and the role that prayer plays in that. Number two, be sure to maintain a full diet of biblical prayer. 
I think that most of us realize that the Reformation was a revolution in preaching. I think it's less well understood that it was also a revolution in prayer. There were, there were, there were basically there was a prayer of confession in the medieval liturgy, plus prayers in, in, in connection with the um, with the Eucharist. But otherwise, there was very little prayer. And the reformers came along, and they were to identify. They were able to identify six basic prayer genres that ought to be present in a worship service. So prayers of praise, a prayer of confession of sin, a prayer of thanksgiving, prayers of intercession, a prayer of illumination, and then a benedictory prayer at the end of the service. And then in addition to that, as far as the prayers of intercession go, they were able to identify the five, what's called the five-fold intercessions, that we should be interceding on behalf of the saints for their sanctification. And we should be interceding for the sick. We should be interceding for the church and its ministry. We should be interceding for the nation, the civil authorities. And we should be interceding on behalf of Christian mission around the whole world. Well, you start adding all that up, these six basic prayer genres, the fivefold intercessions. And what shape is that giving to the public worship of the church? Well, there's a considerable, there is substantial time and thought and energy being given to prayer. I think prayer has just, just about disappeared in many evangelical churches. And, and I, I count that as something of a, of a disaster in our day. I understand why it's uh, disappearing. Because people don't find it exciting. Because people think it's boring. Um, uh, because it's not very well done, uh, perhaps. But by and large, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's been reduced in importance and the time being given to it. I think in a, in a historically reformed worship service, there will be a lot of prayer. There will be a lot of thought given to prayer. There will be a lot of energy given to prayer because the, the importance of prayer will be understood. So be sure to... Be sure to reflect this substantial commitment to prayer by, by, by praying that full diet of biblical prayer in the, in, in the course of your ministry. Uh, then, uh, thirdly, I want to urge that you maintain some distinction in each of the genres. I would say that my critique of public prayer would be something like uh, a, a typical critique of of preaching, stream of consciousness preaching is not very effective. Uh, when somebody is just moving from one thing to another, we all just sit there and scratch our heads. We're saying, "Where is he going? Where has he come from? And where is he going? And what's tying all of this together?" And it's confusing and it's distressing. Well, I think the same is true of of, pub, of public prayer. There should be clear distinctions and categories of that kind of prayer that you are doing. The kind of prayer that's being offered. Uh, when I was an intern under Jim Baird at, at the Granada Presbyterian Church in Coral Gables, Florida, uh, one, one, one day he, he pulled aside the interns and assistant ministers. There were like five of us who participated in every service, and each one was given a prayer. And he said, look, we're getting the same prayer five times. That opening prayer is a prayer of praise. The pastoral prayer is not the prayer of thanksgiving. The prayer of thanksgiving is before the offering. The pastoral prayer, you know, covers certain uh, basic subjects. Uh, then the prayer of illumination. Then the benediction. These are different prayers. 
And so maintain them thematically. Let there be some coherence in your prayers so that the people are able to follow along and so they, they won't tune out because they can't follow what you're doing. Let there be focus and order and consistency in the themes. Emphasize the headings as you pray in leading the public services of the church. If you don't believe me on this, we'll, we'll go to Isaac Watts. And the whole Reformed tradition of free prayer, which was uh, referred to in a variety of ways, such as studied prayer and conceived prayer, they didn't want prayers being written out, but they wanted some order in the prayers. So you have the great handbooks that were written by Matthew Henry and Isaac Watts. Uh, Henry's was a method of prayer, and, and Watts's was a guide to prayer. Watts says, method is necessary to guide our thoughts, to regulate our expressions, and to arrange the several parts of prayer in such an order as is most understood easily by those who join with us and most proper to inspire and maintain our own devotion and theirs. Some method must be used in order to protect us from confusion so that our thoughts are not ill-sorted or mingled or huddled together in tumultuous and unseemly manner. It will be of... of, uh, It will be of use to prevent tautologies or repetitions when each part of prayer is arranged in its proper place. It will guard us from uh, roving digressions when we have arranged our thoughts into order throughout every step of our prayers. So maintain distinction so that the people are able to follow along and, and understand the flow of the prayer and where it has been and where it is going. Then fourthly, preach, uh, pray with urgency. You are dealing with eternal matters. And so that ought to be reflected in, in, in the, this, the fervor of the prayer and the, the urgency. When you confess your sin, confess it with grief. When you give thanks, give thanks with delight. When you make your intercessions, do so with energy and fervor. When you offer prayers of adoration, let it be with awe. Let me cite, again, some of our ecclesiastical heroes. Thomas Watson, in his book on the Ten Commandments, says, Prayer without fervency is like a fire without a sacrifice without fire. Citing the strong cries with which Christ prayed, Hebrews 5, 7, he says, Prayer without fervency is no prayer. It is speaking, not praying. His comments on, or rather, William Gurnall's comments on Daniel Uh, In light of the promise of God regarding the restoration of Israel to the land, he says of Daniel, he sets upon God with a holy violence in prayer and pressed him close. Again, Gurnall, pray fervently or you do nothing. Cold prayer is no more prayer than painted fire is fire. The prayer that warms not your own heart, will it, do you think, move God's? Again, Gurnall, Elijah's prayer fetched fire from heaven because it carried fire to heaven. In in my own experience, I was called upon the last week of an internship in Scotland at the St. David's Broomhouse Church uh, outside of Edinburgh. I was called upon because the, the minister was sick to lead the services Sunday morning and Sunday night, which I had never done before. And so I was somewhat terrified of the whole experience. And uh, they had a custom before the beginning of the service uh, for the people to, uh, cer- certain people who 
were moved to do so would come and they would sit in chairs that were arranged in a circle. This is a half an hour before the service or so. And then on cue, they would all stand up, kneel down at the chairs, and they would begin to pray. So I'm a relative novice at that point. The prayers were at a depth and of a character as such as I had never heard in all my life. And by the time that relatively short meeting of prayer was over, I was completely undone by it. The urgency, the fervor, the, uh, the awe of God that was reflected in, in the manner of their, their prayer, it, it, just, it just pointed out to me my own superficiality, um, the shallowness of my own soul, the absence of any depth at all. I felt utterly undone, utterly unqualified to lead them, sort of uh, drug my carcass up into the pulpit and led the service morning and evening. But, uh, but this stayed with me for months. I went back home that summer. This was April. I went back home in July. And I reported for duty back at Lake Avenue Congregational. And I told the college minister, I am not fit to do anything this summer but sit and listen and learn. And, uh, of course, he wouldn't, he wouldn't hear of it, and, and eventually he talked me into getting, getting, getting involved in more than listening to others, but in, in ministry. But I, 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 looking back, I think it was really the first time I had ever heard people really pray. I'd never heard it in a worship service. We had our token prayers at the beginning of the service and before, maybe before the sermon and then a quick prayer at the end. But that's all that there was. Just a few quick prayers. No, no, no real devotion to prayer. No real depth in prayer. No more, no real urgency in prayer. So what I'm saying is lead the people in prayer. And when you do so, pray with urgency and passion and fervor as well as good order. At the same time, I want to say pray simply. No complicated concepts. It's the genius of the Book of Common Prayer. Think of the prayer of confession. You confess thoughts, words, deeds, evil done, good left undone, through ignorance, through weakness, through our own uh, deliberate fault. So there's kind of a staccato to it. There's a, there's a sim, sim, uh, simplicity, uh, you know, theological depth, but yeah, literary sim, simplicity to them. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords. I mean, that's rich theology, but it's, it's simply stated. Uh, people can follow it. They can understand it. They can, they can pray along with you, which is the goal, is to have the congregation praying with you. And then, sixthly, leading in prayer, use the language of the Scripture. Luke 11, 1, the disciples go to Jesus, and they say to Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. What do we learn from that? Well, what we learn is we don't know how to pray. We don't know how to praise God. We don't know how to confess our sins. We don't know how to give thanks. We don't know the priorities in our, in our intercessions. We have to go to the Bible to find those things out. We have to be taught those things. We don't know them instinctively or naturally. We have to go to God's word to find these things out. And so the language of prayer is the, the, the Bible is, in fact, our prayer book. It gives us the language of prayer. And particularly, uh, particularly this, is the, this is the case with the Psalms. Romans 8.26 The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. So, for example, when you pray your intercession, pray that that we might fulfill the ideals of the New Testament, that we would obey the commands, that we would embody the virtues, that we would follow the exhortations, pray the Sermon on the Mount, uh, that we would be people characterized by 
poverty of spirit and, 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 and meekness and, and, and mercy and the people that would hunger and thirst after righteousness. I came to realize at some point I had never heard the Beatitudes expressed in a prayer. In my, I grew up in the church. I was in Sunday school every Sunday, church, Sunday morning, Sunday night. Never heard the ideals of the Sermon on the Mount. Never heard the ideals of the, the fruit of the Spirit, that we would be a people characterized by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Never heard those things prayer. What else would we be praying for except the ideals of the New Testament, except that we would fulfill the commands of the Bible, except that we would embody the virtues that are found there and that we would fulfill the responsibilities and duties therein. And do we not need help in all of those things? Are we not weak? Is Jesus not the true true vine and we are the branches and apart from him we can do nothing? And if all that is true, when we gather, we better be praying. If we're going to take on the world in all of its hostility, we better be praying if we think we're going to survive and thrive uh, in, in, in ministry, in this life, in, in, this, in this world. So, lead the people in prayer. And secondly, lead the, the church in proclamation. So, what I said earlier, you've already preached the gospel just in the praying. Now they're ready for the, for the sermon proper. And for that, I want to go to uh, chapter 4, verse 13. Until I come. See, again, the Apostle Paul, he's looking ahead. He's going to depart this world. He's leaving the churches behind in other people. He's establishing the priorities and the methodologies that they're to use. He urges prayers be offered and he urges, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of the scripture. So let's unpack that a little bit. Devote yourself. Uh, This is the, the thing that you're to be committed to. This is the thing that you're to do. This is the thing that you're not to neglect. Devote yourself to the reading is what it literally says. The word public is supplied. Uh, it's supplied because everybody understood at that uh, in those days what they were talking about because they knew of it from the synagogue in which the scripture was read. And it was le- read, to use the Latin, lectio continua. So what they would do in the synagogue is they would read a portion of scripture. They would mark where they left off. They would come back the next Sabbath and they would go to where they had marked and they would read again. They'd read from the law. They'd read from the prophets. They'd read from the Psalms or sing the Psalms. And they would read their their ways consecutively through books of the Bible. So when he says that uh, Timothy is uh, to devote himself to the reading of Scripture, that's what he's talking about. So what I'm saying is read and preach the Scripture, lectio continua, verse by verse, Text by text, the Westminster Directory for Worship urges that a chapter of each of each testament be read in each service. A chapter of each in each. I think that's a bit much for modern congregations, but what we do, we do a chapter. Chapter Sunday morning, chapter Sunday night. And the reason why we do this is after about 10 years in Savannah, I looked at the pace at which I was preaching verse by verse uh, through the Bible, and I I realized I was not going to get through the Bible for about a hundred years, and so I couldn't I couldn't justify uh, depriving the congregation of those books of the Bible. So we then began to map out a reading schedule so that we would read our way through the whole Bible on a regular basis. Uh, as, As you look further at this. 
Uh, and, and by the way, that's another thing. I never heard the Bible read growing up. I was in an evangelical, Baptist, typical um, revival format service. I never heard the Bible read. There were a couple of verses that were being preached on. No systematic reading of the Bible. Then I go to England, and I'm attending an Anglican church where they, forgive me, but they hardly even believe the Bible, and they have a systematic reading. They're reading their way through chapters. And I thought, the irony of this, we believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. We don't read the Bible. They, they don't believe anything, and they're reading the Bible. What, what makes sense of that for me, someone? And, and the way it was read was, was dynamic powerful reading from Isaiah. That's when I realized, you know what? That was really impressive, and I've never heard the Bible read like that before. And, and then, what, what is, you see the connection between the reading and the preaching. Uh, until I come devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Clearly, the exhortation and teaching is arising out of the public reading of the Scripture. The, public, the, the, re, the Scripture is being read, and then from out of the reading comes the exhortation and, and the teaching. It arises out of the text of Scripture. So like I say, I grew up in a church which every Sunday, um, there's very, very little prayer, very little Bible reading, evangelistic sermon, altar call at, at the end. All the sermons were evangelistic. I go off to college. I then um, am taken by some friends to the Grace Community Church in Panorama City, California, and John MacArthur is preaching, and he's, it's a Sunday night, and he's preaching on 1 John. He's expounding the word phrase by phrase, verse by verse. I walk out of that place, and I say, you know what? That is what the preacher is meant to do. My little 18-year-old brain, a mind full of mush who doesn't know anything, I knew instinctively that's what the preacher is supposed to do. He's supposed to explain the Bible and then apply it to us. He's not supposed to be preaching to the unbelievers every Sunday after Sunday. We need to be fed. And so I continued to attend that congregation as I was able to get rides for the next three years. And Sunday by Sunday, I walked in one person and walked out a different person every single Sunday. Absolutely dynamic, simple, verse by verse preaching. It was First uh, Corinthians in the mornings, First John in the evenings. Tremendous, powerful. That's when I knew that I was going to preach systematically, verse by verse, Lectio Continua, through books of the Bible. I commend it to you. Make that characteristic of your preaching. Uh, there's a place for topical sermons. Um, there is a place, and, and there's time uh, to do that. But there's something about verse-by-verse verse preaching that will build a congregation over time. And, and not only build a congregation, it will keep you honest. It will force you to deal with everything that's in the Bible. It will force you to preach the whole counsel of God. I, I'd been in Savannah, I don't know, eight or nine months, and I arrived in Mark at the passage where Jesus is uh, condemning divorce. All right? And I had a congregation... I, it, was a, it was a mixed multitude, to say the least, with plenty of people who had had unwarranted, uh, uh, unauthorized, unbiblical divorces. What was I going to do? I'm going to offend people. People are going to get mad at me. People are going to be upset. They're going to feel like I was pointing the finger at them, beating, beating them over the head with the Bible, throwing Bible bricks at them. What am I going to do? Well, I stood up and I, I was able to say 
accurately and truthfully. We are going to study this verse because we just left off on the verse before this. And, and, and when we finish this passage, we're going to do the verse after it. So it was, it was an honest treatment of the subject of divorce that I was forced to do. I couldn't just ride my hobby horses week after week. Systematic exposition forced me to preach the whole counsel of God. And so it keeps the preacher honest rather than just treating his pet themes. It forces him Sunday morning, Sunday night uh, to preach all of God's message to his people. And then I want to close with this by saying this. Preach with passion. You're not giving a lecture. It's an exhortation. You're not just giving a Bible study. The language that the Apostle Paul uses in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2 is, is instructive. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Reprove, rebuke, exhort. And he just finished saying all scripture is profitable for teaching. Reproof, correction, training in righteousness. That the man of God may be uh, equipped for every good work. So that there's the positive affirmation and the negative corrections. This, I'm saying, is the most Uh, important, I think the greatest need of our day is for preachers to preach with reproof, rebuke, and exhortation. The positive and the negative. The affirmation and the correction. That's what we need. We need the whole counsel of God. We need law and gospel, both. We all need it. So my My message uh, to you, Will, is lead the congregation in prayer and lead the congregation in the ministry of the word. Now, what if you were forced to choose between one or the other, leading in prayer or leading in preaching? Well, you might be surprised to know Charles Haddon Spurgeon actually took up that question. Here's what his answer was. It is my solemn conviction that the prayer is one of the most weighty, useful, and honorable parts of the service. And it ought to be even more considered than the sermon. But if you have to choose between the two, he says, I will sooner yield up the sermon than the prayer. In other words, you say, all right, somebody take the prayer, somebody take the sermon. Spurgeon says, I'm going to take the prayer. You preach the sermon. It's the more important Thus much, he said, I have said in order to impress upon you that you must highly esteem public prayer and seek of the Lord for the gifts and graces necessary to its right discharge. That last bit, seek of the Lord for the gifts and graces. Of course, none of us can do this in our own strength. None of us can be faithful. None of us will be fruitful in our ministry except the Lord impart the gifts and graces necessary for the ministry. And as we ordain you this evening and install you in your position as an an assistant minister in this congregation, that is the prayer that we will be offering for you so that you will be able to be a worship leader, to lead the people in prayer and lead the people in the proclamation of the word of God as we pray together. 
Our Father in heaven, we, uh, we rejoice that you have raised up young men like Will uh, to enter into the ministry of the word. And we pray, O oh Lord, that in the course of this evening that you will anoint him and empower him for this great work, that he might lead the people of God in worship. As the people gather in the house of God, in the presence of the Son of God, under the Word of God, bless Will in his work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.